Well, good morning. And uh, why don't we begin today by just giving ourselves a hand. Look at all this response we've got from our Christmas in July food drive. Isn't that awesome? Now, this isn't it. There will be more bags that are brought throughout the morning uh, before the next service. We gave out around 445 shopping bags, and uh, so uh, I know that there are more that's going to be coming back in, but this is awesome. And just so you guys uh, are aware, remember that all of these are going to local schools and local missions that we support, and so there are going to be a ton of people in our community that directly benefit from your generosity. And so thank you, Bachelor Creek, for having a heart for our community. And uh, we can't wait to see what God does uh, through our generosity. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. This is Gideon part 2. We began the story of Gideon last week. And as you're turning to Judges chapter 7, I'll just tell you that as Americans, we love a good underdog story. It's in our blood I think it might have something to do with the fact that we see ourselves as the result of a successful underdog operation against Great Britain 245 years ago. But it's not just in our country, it's, it's in Hollywood. Hollywood loves underdog stories. Rudy, the Karate Kid, Rocky Balboa. Some people might say that me marrying Tara is a true underdog story. I would probably agree with that. Of course, there's the U.S. hockey team of 1980 that beat the, the Russia, the Soviet Union in the Olympics, known as the miracle on ice. But maybe the greatest sports underdog story of all time happened right here in Indiana. The year was 1954, and the high school boys basketball state championship game featured Milan versus Muncie Central. This was decades before class basketball existed. Milan had an enrollment of 161 students. Muncie Central had more than 10 times that amount. And against all odds, the Milan Indians defeated Muncie Central, giving hope to every small town school in the state. The story is so captivating that it's the inspiration behind, in my opinion, the greatest sports movie of all time. Of course, I'm talking about Hoosiers. The film was made in 1986. It stars Gene Hackman as coach Norman Dale. And as far as I'm concerned, it ought to be, this movie ought to be incorporated into our school's um, curriculum. I think it should be required watching for every student before they graduate. Can I get an amen? I tell you that because you might be tempted to see the story of Gideon going up against the Midianites as an underdog story. But it is so far beyond that, it's not even funny. This is the story of a powerless people going up against the mightiest force in the region. It's not a lesser team going up against a better team. It's not like a mid-major going up against a power five school. It's not like Ball State taking on Purdue. This would be like a middle school boys team taking on IU. Last week, we saw that God had sent the Midianites into Israel to humble them. But that when but when Israel cried out in pain, God had compassion on them, and he raised up a deliverer, Gideon. And I explained to you that Gideon was not your typical hero. When we first encounter him, he's cowering in fear in a hole. But God turns Gideon into a man of bravery by assuring him of his presence with him. And that might lead to the most important lesson we learned last week, that God doesn't call the brave, he makes brave those he calls. 
Well, at the end of chapter 6, God tells Gideon to go and mount a resistance against the massive, marooding Midianite militia. And Gideon, again, true to form, he drags his feet, and God reassures him that he's with them through the famous fleece test. He assures him that, that he will give him the victory. So we begin reading in Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. You ought to really marinate on that statement. It's one of my favorite Old Testament verses. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. You can learn so much about how God wants to work in your life through that statement. Verse 3, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. He says, anyone who trembles with fear. I wonder when he said that if Gideon raised his hand and said, me, me. He's like, no, no, Gideon, you're the one that's supposed to lead the people. Now, you could actually make an argument that this may have been a smart move. 10,000 brave soldiers might be better than 32,000 when two-thirds of them are wimps. But this next part, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hams lapping like dogs. Because who does that, right? The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that, have, that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. You're thinking, ooh, what's, what's the symbolism in keeping the ones who lap like a dog? Does this prove that God loves dogs more than cats? Well, first, that doesn't need proving. It's inherently obvious in nature. <laughs> but no, there is absolutely no symbolism in what happened. It was just a random test designed to get rid of 97% of the army. But here's what I want you to think about. God intentionally weakened Gideon's army. There, there is so much we can learn from that. First, God often weakens us before he uses us. God often will weaken us before he uses us. God never delights in hurting us, but God wants us to trust him, to depend on him. That's the most important thing we can ever learn in life. So God will sometimes reduce the size of our army so that we have no choice but to trust him. You say, what do you mean by reduce the size of our army? Well, suddenly your health goes bad. You lose your job or you take a reduction in pay. It could even be your marriage or you go through a rocky time. I'm not saying that, that God is the one doing any of those things directly, just that God's sovereign purpose behind them might be teaching you to lean into him in a way that you never have before. Here's another statement for you to marinate on. If dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. 
If dependence is the objective, then weakness is actually an advantage. Think about that. How could weakness ever be an advantage? Well, if it makes you lean into Jesus where the real power is, then it's an advantage. For some of you, it's when your husband failed you that you learned that you could rely on your heavenly father. It was when you got laid off that you could trust God as your heavenly supplier. When you were alone, it was then that you learned that God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Weakness forces you to lean into God, and there and sometimes only there can you learn the four words that can absolutely transform your life. God is always faithful. Sometimes you'll never know God is all you need until God is all you have. Well, the way that the Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. How could Paul say that? Brag about your weaknesses? Well, here's another place I'm subpar. Here's another place I've failed miserably. How could he do that? He did it because it was there that he was able to put on display Christ's power, not his own. You see, if, if I were to brag upon my strengths, or if the Apostle Paul was to, to brag on his strengths, you may sit there and say, well, I wish that I were more like him, but I can't be. But if I brag on my weaknesses and I tell you about what Christ's power has done through me, you'll say, wow, I have access to what he has access to. I've told people before that effective preaching is just one beggar telling a bunch of other beggars where to find bread. And so maybe the best thing I can do to help you toward that end is to make you understand that I'm a beggar too. I can tell you that one of the problems that I have with so many Christian books on parenting is that they virtually guarantee success if you just follow these five steps. Do these five things and, and, and your kids will turn out right and, and everything, will be, everything will be great and you'll never have any problems. And anytime I come across one of those books, I just think to myself, you know, God was a perfect father. And one-third of the angels left heaven. God was a perfect father, and, and Adam and Eve disobeyed him. And so I'm not sure that trying to out-technique God is, is the right approach. To me, the really dangerous problem with thinking that there's a foolproof way in parenting is it keeps us from the one thing that we need more than anything else, and that is complete and utter dependence on the mercy of God and the grace of God to work in our kids' lives. That's what God responds to. It's not perfect technique. It's not in our strength as parents, but it's hope in his mercy. What keeps us from the riches of God's power is that we feel like we have our own riches and we don't need God. And so one of the most important spiritual truths that you can ever learn is that your strengths are more dangerous to you than your weaknesses because your strengths keep you from hoping in God's mercy. To be saved means that you come to a place where you acknowledge that you cannot save yourself and you fall upon the mercy of God. You realize that you are utterly unrighteous, you are utterly hopeless, and that God does it all. And then to be used by God from that point forward means that you come to a point where, again, you continue to realize how absolutely powerless you are and you fall in hope on God's mercy. And so sometimes God weakens us to bring us to that point. You might want to write this down. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly 
until he has hurt him deeply. Sometimes to get you to lean on his power, God has to reduce your army. And so he allows you to fail. Two of the most growing seasons in my life came through failure. One was a failure in something I was trying to do. The other was a failure in courage. And so listen, I want you to rethink what God might be doing in your life. Maybe right now you're experiencing an army reduction. And if you are, I want you to be open to the essential lesson that God is showing you in it. As I was thinking through this this week, I was reminded of the story of the little bird who was flying south for the winter. But unfortunately, the bird got a late start, and so he got caught in a snowstorm. The storm was so bad, and the weather was so cold that ice began to, to, to freeze his wings, and he could no longer fly, and so he went in for a crash landing. He's laying there on the ground, unable to fly, and he's thinking, great, now I'm going to freeze to death. Well, at that moment, a cow walked over and dropped a pile of manure on him. And he thinks, awesome, I'm going to freeze to death and I've got a pile of manure on me. But then the heat from the manure began to thaw his wings and the bird realized that, that he was going to be able to fly again. And as he's realizing what's happening, he gets so excited that he begins to chirp and he begins to sing. But the noise that he's making attracts a cat who comes and eats him. We can learn three, three lessons from the story. Lesson number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Lesson two, not everyone who digs you out is your friend. Lesson three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your little chirper shut. <laughs> because God might be doing something amazing. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said, God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence upon him. Well, the second thing that God is trying to teach us through the reduction of Gideon's army is that God sends salvation through the weakness of humble obedience, not the strength of human effort. I explained this before. Not only does each story in Judges teach us something, but the book of Judges as a whole has a message for us. We looked a few weeks ago at the odd trajectory in the book of Judges. The book of Judges opens with Joshua, a mighty general a warrior who leads the entire Israelite army together. But then we have Ehud, a left-handed crippled leader. After that, there's Deborah, a female judge who teams up with the other heroine in the story, J.L., just a housewife with a, the equivalent of a frying pan. Now we have Gideon, whose army God whittles down to just 300 men. In a few chapters, we'll get to Samson, who fights all by himself. And then after the book of Judges, we come to 1 Samuel, and we find a scrawny, small shepherd boy named David who writes songs and poems and kills a giant with a slingshot all by himself while all of Israel stands on the sidelines and watches. You see, we are going from strength to weakness. That points us to something very important. God would send salvation not through a king who would conquer the world's armies with a superior army, but by one who would lay down his life in service and humility and obedience. 
Time and time again in Jesus' life, we are confronted with what we might call the weakness of Jesus. Before Jesus' trial, we see him washing his disciples' feet, taking on the very nature of the lowest servant. During his trial, he is maligned and mocked and spit upon. He seems unable to, to defend himself. He's so weak that he cannot even carry his cross. Someone has to help him. And then he dies on a cross with his arms stretched out, an ultimate picture of weakness. But through that, God brings a resurrection. And this is how it happens. We humbly obey and God brings power. And, and so you see, the same is true for you. You faithfully obey through your weakness. You continue to faithfully obey. That means that you keep sharing Christ with your friends. You keep patiently parenting your child. You refuse to give up praying for your lost son. You endure the scorn and the pain and, and the, the justice and, and, and without trying to get retribution. And you just continue to faithfully obey through weakness and God sends a miracle. God doesn't send miracles through human strength, but he does, he does it through humble obedience and faith. Well, God got Gideon's army down to the size he needed it. And we continue reading in verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura. Verse 12, the Midianites settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now, I don't want you to miss the humor in this. The picture of Gideon is not of a spear. It's not of a hurricane. It's not of a giant chiseled boulder. He's a tumbling piece of bread. Like, what team chooses this as their mascot? Or the biscuits? But this biscuit flattens a mighty tent. Now, I'm no Boy Scout, and if you threw a piece of bread at a tent that I set up, it might fall over, but it wouldn't happen with a soldier. And Gideon recognizes in this that God is reassuring him. He says in verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. The third lesson we learn from the story is that God deals patiently with faltering faith. God deals patiently with faltering faith. I find it really comforting in this story how God takes such time and patience to reassure Gideon. We so often picture God as up in heaven saying, if you don't have absolute confidence in me all of the time, then I reject you. But that's not what we see here, is it? In Mark 9, 22, there is a man with a sick son who comes to Jesus and, and says, Jesus, if you're able, have pity. And I would expect Jesus to respond with, if? 
Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you know who I am? What do you mean, if I'm able? Instead, Jesus says, everything is possible for those who believe. And so the man responds, I believe, kind of, sort of, help my unbelief. Now, at this point, if I were Jesus, I would have said, well, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Go home, memorize some scripture, and come back when you're ready to go all in. But that's not what Jesus does. He heals the boy. Do you have doubts? Do you find yourself doubting? It's okay. God can handle your doubts. God can handle your questions. Bring those to God. Ask God to reveal his faithfulness to you. But you also have to consider number four, eventually you have to take the risk. Eventually there comes a point where you have to take the step. Think about what's going on in this scene. Gideon is afraid and God is trying to reassure him. And so God tells Gideon to go deep into the Midianite camp, close enough to overhear a conversation in a Midianite tent. Now, if I were Gideon, I would have said, God, maybe you could give me a little more assurance out here. I got that fleece. It's in my backpack. Can we, can we try that again? Can we run that back? How about this time? I'm going to close my eyes. and I'm going to count to 10. And, and when I get to 10 and open my eyes, how about this time you can have the fleece kind of situated in some sort of origami structure? Okay, then I'll know. Then I'll know that, that you're really, really with me. Like, God, I don't know if you get this or not, but I'm really fr- afraid. I'm scared. And the last thing I want to do is to go into the Midianite camp at night all by myself. What's the lesson here? God will patiently develop your faith. But he requires you from time to time to take steps of faith of your own. See, here's how faith works. God reveals a little and we take a step. God reveals a little more and then we take a step. Scripture says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you find yourself waiting on God to answer all of your questions before you believe, I'm just going to tell you, you'll never get there. You take the step, and he'll explain more as you go. David said that God's word was like a lamp into his feet. But we'd sure like it to be a spotlight, right? We want to be able to see the end from the beginning. We want to see how the whole map is charted out before we ever start. But God says, no, I'm going to give you enough light for the next step. You take that step and he's going to reveal a little bit more. And the way that God develops our faith is by inviting us to take our next steps. We've all heard about how mama birds get their young to fly. They kind of push them out of the nest. Have you ever thought about that from the perspective of the little bird? Like, Mama, what are you doing? Mama, Mama, what? But the mother bird knows that the little bird is ready to fly. And that's what God is doing with you. He's inviting you to take these next steps of faith. And so Gideon divides divides his men into three companies of 100 men each. He gives each one of them a trumpet, a torch, and a jar. Now, what's missing here? A sword? Don't you think that would be helpful? He tells them, light your torch and put it in the jar. And then we're going to go into the valley and we're going to line the wall of the valley. And when I blow my trumpet, all of you are going to blow your trumpets and then smash your jar and raise your torch. 
And in verse 19, they waited until the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So here's how this worked. Usually a torch and a trumpet signified an entire battalion. And Gideon places all of these men around the valley. And the smashing of the jars would have sounded like thousands upon thousands of swords being raised. So in the dark, it would not have seemed like 300 men. It would have seemed like there were tens of thousands. And they do this all at the beginning of the middle watch, which was 3 a.m., which means that one-third of the Midianite army were just returning to the camp from being on guard duty. Another third were getting ready to go out on guard duty, and another third were fast asleep. And at just that moment, at the changing of the guard, the Israelites blow their trumpets, they smash their jars, and all these torches appear. And everyone in the Midianite camp is groggy, they're kind of rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, it's dark. You have what seems like thousands upon soldiers lining the canyon above you. And at that moment, a bunch of soldiers are coming back into camp. And so the soldiers at camp assume that the people coming back are there to attack them. And so they draw their swords and they all kill each other. The end. And everyone lived happily ever after. Except, of course, the Midianites. But there's not a single Israelite casualty. Which leads me to number five. God turns weakness into strength. God turns weakness into strength. Let me point out something cool here. God never explained to Gideon how to conduct this battle. From all we can tell, Gideon seems to come up with it out of his own cowardly head. It was through God reducing the size of Gideon's army that Gideon had to come up with a new plan. And it was a better plan because it resulted in a victory that didn't cause a single Israelite casualty. And so Gideon's weakness actually became the source of his strength. Lastly, number six, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. I think Gideon's whole life can be summarized to me as follow Jesus. Join Jesus wherever he is. It's better to be with Jesus before the most formidable army all by yourself than to have that massive army on your side without Jesus. You see, church, Christian maturity is when you learn to say, I'll go anywhere with Jesus, and I wouldn't want to go anywhere without him. Christian maturity is when you say that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The mature Christian knows that in Christ, I can give up all that I have because in Christ, I already have all that I need. So the question is, God, where do you want me? Lord, where do you want me? Because I want to be with you. Again, Hudson Taylor says, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Well, I'd love to put a period there. I'd love for Gideon's life to end right there, but unfortunately it doesn't. Gideon's story doesn't end well. At the end of his life, he seems to get proud, his power and success get to his head. He starts reading his own press releases. He starts using his position for personal vendettas. 
He makes an idol commemorating his victories. The Israelites start worshiping it as well. Now, you're going to have to come back for all of that next week. But for right now, I just want to say that the greatest danger you will ever face is getting out of a posture of weakness. See, I believe more often than not, Christians pass the test of adversity, but it's a test of prosperity that they often fail. When you get strong, you begin to think to yourself, I have all that I need, and that is when you fall apart. Church, never forget where you were when God found you. Never forget how much grace he has shown you and how much you owe to that grace. Beware that the greatest spiritual victories are often the times when you can slide right back down into the hole from where you came. You see, church, Christianity begins with I'm not righteous enough to save myself. And it continues every day for the rest of your life with I need God's power for every good thing in my life. Can I ask you right now just to spend a few moments in the presence of the Holy Spirit? Could, could you bow your heads right now? Bow your heads. Maybe God has been bringing you to a moment of weakness. Maybe you begin to sense some of what he's trying to teach you. He's teaching you, I'll be your security. I'll be your ever faithful companion. I'll be your justification and your righteousness. I'll be your glory. I'll be the lifter of your head. Or maybe God has delivered you from weakness in the past. But you're realizing today that you've perhaps slipped back into a a place of independence from God. You're leaning on your own strength, and God is telling you today, wake up. Don't make me do something drastic. Or maybe you're here today and you've never begun that journey. You've never realized how hopeless you are without God. The two things you can never overcome on your own are sin and death. You can't release yourself from the curse of sin. You can't deliver yourself from the power of death. And Jesus did both of those for you. He died in your place suffering the curse for your sin. And he overcame death for you in his resurrection. You have to receive that. Confessing your weakness, acknowledging that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself, and you receive that as a gift. Have you done that? Would you like to? With your heads bowed, let's pray together. Lord, for anyone here today who've never, who has never confessed their weakness before you, who've never acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God, today I pray that they would say, Jesus, I confess today that I cannot save myself and that I need your power to do that. Today I give my whole life to you. I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I accept the the gift of salvation that you've offered me. God, I'm ready to surrender in baptism for the forgiveness of sins the gift of eternal life. God, for others of us who acknowledge maybe our weakness in the past, but we've been trying to live so much of our life at our own strength, God, I pray that today would be the day that we say, I'm going to brag about my weaknesses. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to brush them under the rug. 
but I will, I will brag and boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses because it's there where I rely on the power of Christ in my life. God, may we be a people that embrace our weakness so the power of Christ may be magnified, may be on full display in our lives, in our church, and in our community so that it would never be about us, but it would be all about you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.